Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to host a conversation with Dr. Albert Moeller. He is the president of Southern Seminary and Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. I had the privilege of doing my MDiv at Southern and working under him during my time there. And uh, Dr. Moeller is a respected theologian and cultural commentator, and he has recently written just about three weeks ago on the comments of Pastor Andy Stanley about unhitching Christian faith from the Old Testament. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, and as always, glad to be with you and glad to talk to you anytime. Well, I really appreciate that. Andy Stanley uh, caused some serious controversy when he argued in a sermon that, as I said a minute ago, the Christian faith should be, in his, his words, unhitched from the Old Testament. He said this, Peter James Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. And Dr. Muller, you felt it necessary to respond to this idea. You quote Stanley at some length, but what was it about that initial quotation that uh, that came across your radar screen? Well, you know, like so many of the events that take place these days, uh, you see a headline or uh, some kind of mention, and uh, to be honest, I thought it it can't be that bad. Uh, And I've I've been around long enough uh, to to know the world before social media, and now the world in the uh, inundation of social media. So... Mm. um, uh, eventually, I, I just noticed a trend, so I decided I'm just going to go back to the source. I'm, I'm going to go back uh, to the messages and to the uh, to the arguments that were made. And uh, then you, I had one of those moments you sometimes have as a theologian when you realize this problem is, is a lot worse than I thought and, uh, and, and a huge issue. You know, there are issues worth uh, debating, and uh, there are issues uh, at, at different levels of proper debate. But when you're talking about the nature of Scripture and when you're talking about a question as basic as... As, uh, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're talking about an issue that is absolutely inescapably central to how Christians are to understand and read the Bible and thus know the gospel and understand what Jesus uh, revealed concerning his own identity and, his, and not only his person but his work. And uh, unhitching the Old Testament from the church is effectively uh, to create an apostate church, a, a, a church that is not the church. Jesus established. I know that's very strong, but let's just be clear. Jesus himself, uh, he defined his ministry as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, not the unhitching of the Old Testament. And and furthermore, Owen, I, I've been around a long time, and I am uh, not only a, a systematic and historical theologian, but I, I, I'm also in my uh, 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 ending my sixth decade of life. And, uh, and, and what I know from that is that uh, uh, the theological liberalism, Protestant liberalism, uh, in the 20th century uh, had to unhitch from the Old Testament in, in order to, uh, to transform the gospel. And, and I, I'm afraid that's what we're seeing, not just in this one preacher in this one situation, but in this larger question at this time. Well, I think that's well said. <clears throat> There's a movement in our time to downplay, at the very least, you're speaking carefully here. I agree with you. At the very least, we're seeing a downplaying of uh, dependence upon the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Stanley actually references this when he says um, that the the church, 
the first century leadership of the church unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. And he also says uh, in his comments that the Old Testament is not the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. So we have multiple things to tackle here. You've already introduced several of them, but we cannot help but notice that already at the outset, Stanley is actually somewhat surprisingly to me declaring that the broader issue is not just this, you know, it can be kind of tricky how you, how you think about old covenant law and new covenant law, as you alluded to. No, this is actually a, a conversation about being embarrassed by and not wanting to be linked to Old Testament worldview and theology. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And it, and this is where the larger context, just with Andy Stanley, is so important. You know, I began my article by saying, sooner or later, you begin to take a man at his word. And uh, so this is a long argument. It's not one sermon. It's not one sermon series. It's a very long, clearly premeditated approach where uh, Andy Stanley is, a, uh, is applying his own apologetic methodology, which is to try to get over, and you use the very word I used in my article, it's essential, the embarrassment of, uh, of dependence upon Scripture. By the way, it's all of Scripture. I mean, he uh, he, he is, has very publicly, in his messages and, and writings, he has very clearly said that uh, the Church is not to base its primary apologetic on Scripture at all, mm. either the New or the Old Testament. And, uh, and yet, as you know, especially in the 19th and 20th century, uh, uh, those on the Protestant left quickly became more embarrassed by the Old Testament than anything else. Uh, what they saw as a crude uh, theology, a, uh, a, a an absolutely uh, uh, abhorrent, bloody sacrificial system, a, 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 a retrograde theology of blame and substitution and sacrifice, and not to mention all the laws, uh, whether it were it came down to the moral law or the ceremonial uh, law of Israel or the holiness code. It's just all an embarrassment. And so he's unhitching from an embarrassment, but, uh, but what, what you and I know is that Andy Stanley's problem is not really the Old Testament. It's the larger question of whether or not the Bible uh, is God's revelation to us and, uh, and, and the revelation upon which we as the Church are permanently dependent. That's right. That's exactly right. It is confusing today, though. Because folks like Andy Stanley and many who follow him will indeed say that they they preach the Bible, they trust the Bible, the Bible's their authority, and these sorts of things. But if you dig into their writings and if you listen carefully to their sermons, they end up giving us a Marcion-like uh, theology proper. In other words, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and burning anger, uh, essentially out of control in his anger. Uh, that's really the way the view looks. And the New Testament God is a God of love. Christ reveals the love of God effectively outmoding the prior God. So Marcion, as you point out in your article at your website, albertmoller.com, getting unhitched from the Old Testament, question mark, Andy Stanley aims at heresy. This, this Marcionism, Dr. Moeller, looks like it is back. It looks like it is back in some force today where you have a divided God yeah. when it comes to the two Testaments. Yeah, you know, it, it never went away. Uh, all, all the heresies are perennial. Mm. Uh, they always stay close at hand, and uh, they just arise over and over again. You know, one of the, 
One of the issues I raised in my article, I want to be clear, I'm not at all accusing Andy Stanley of anti-Semitism. I am saying that the theology he's arguing for is tailor-made for anti-Semitism. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Third Reich took advantage of these very uh, theological arguments. Uh, and, and even before that, uh, German Protestant liberals who, who, who really created the, the, the seedbed uh, for that kind of mentality, such as Adolf von Harnack, uh, wanted to recreate Christianity in Marcion's uh, heretical uh, model. And, and of course, just to be clear so our listeners understand, Marcion denied, not only, by the way, uh, the uh, divine inspiration of the Old Testament, and, and furthermore declared it to be uh, representative of a different God than the God of the New Testament, mm. but he also discarded anything in the New Testament that sounded like a fulfillment of the Old Testament. <laughs> My stars. And that's so, that's so problematic, because in reality, when you're looking, for example, at the motif, uh, biblical theology-wise of justice in the Bible, you have to recognize that the old is on this subject, as with so many subjects, foreshadowing what is going to come into full glory, full high-definition color in the new. So if you're talking about, for example, the Israelites um, opposing those who would destroy them in the conquest of the promised land in the book of Joshua, for example, you recognize, yes, that's very significant. Yes, it's very significant for the angel of the Lord to strike down nearly 200,000 uh, pagans, but that's actually going to pale in comparison to what is going to happen at the end of all things in the book of Revelation. So that's why I think you and I would say a figure like a Marcion is going to work not only to, to see the Old Testament as outmoded, but to pick and choose from the new. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you know, my, one of my uh, uh, one of the observations that comes most immediately in my mind. Uh, I, I often mention this: is that uh, in this, you and I, and uh, I would argue, Orthodox biblical Christians are in absolute agreement with uh, an atheist like the late Christopher Hitchens, because uh, Christopher Hitchens said the only way you can make an argument that the God of the Old Testament uh, is uh, different than the God of the New Testament is if you never read the Bible. <laughs> And uh, because he pointed out exactly what you underlined, he said, if you think the Old Testament uh, re represents a, uh, a, a an exaggerated divine wrath, then just wait until you read the book of Revelation, where the agent of God's wrath is none other than Christ riding on a white horse mm. with a sword coming out of his mouth, with which he will judge the nations. Mm. That's exactly right. You know, um, I, I think a lot of preachers are influenced by Stanley's kind of arguing. I want to I want to uh, decouple for just a minute from his precise words and arguments and just reflect a little bit more broadly on evangelical theology and evangelical preaching in particular. So, in other words, most guys out there who are professing evangelicals, whether, you know, yep. in the center or whether of the more conservative variety, most of them are in no way going to uh, bear hug Marcionism. They're not going to be quoting Marcion left and right in their theology. In fact, to the degree that they're aware of him and know of his teachings, they're not going to really support that. At the very least, they're going to be fairly uncomfortable with it. But I would argue that I do think a Stanley 
this kind of figure, this kind of major figure often pulls not simply his immediate hearers, his fans, but also pulls to some degree the rest of the movement. In other words, what I'm getting at is Stanley wants to preach love. Nobody, Nobody's against love, by the way, uh, liberal or conservative in the Protestant world. Everybody wants to preach love. But I would argue that Stanley would influence preachers mainly in this way. Again, not so much making everybody bear hug Marcion, but in that they would think, evangelical preachers would think, it's kind of a bad thing to preach the bad news. You should really only focus on the good news if you want to win people to the kingdom. Do you think that's an accurate statement on my part? Yeah, and in theological analysis over time, I call this the reset of the mean. Mm. So uh, someone makes a statement so far off, everyone recognizes that it's very far off, can't be right, mm. uh, not only unbiblical but, uh, but unfaithful, needs to be repudiated. But what wasn't noticed is that in making that argument, that individual reset the mean uh, so that the average it kind of position, the midpoint, now appears to be a very different place. This is exactly how theological liberalism moves forward. Uh, and almost no occasions did a theological liberal make the argument, and, and the people in the pew say, oh, that's right. That's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, he, he made an argument, and everyone said, that's ridiculous. But without recognizing it, by allowing that argument into kind of polite theological discourse, they just reset the mean. And so the next thing you know, uh, an argument three-quarters that far doesn't sound so out of bounds. It's not that. And the mean moves further to the left, and 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 that that that's what happens here. Now, there's always more to the picture, and especially when it when it comes to the Old Testament, the good news is, you know what, Jesus Himself and the apostles actually in the New Testament tell us how to read the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks be to God, the church in the 21st century is not left in the position of saying, "Oops, we got a challenge. Um, we got to start thinking about this fast." Uh, the good news is. Uh, Jesus spoke directly to this, as did the apostles. Yeah, one of the key issues here is historicity. You're quite right. Stanley uh, at one point said this about Old Testament narratives and whether they're to be taken as historical. Quote, then a person has to decide, okay, well, actually, Jesus references the Garden of Eden, or he references in the beginning when God created the first two people. He references Jonah. Then you have to decide when the Son of God references these people and these incidences and these prophets, what did he mean? I'm comfortable, Stanley says, not everybody is, but I am comfortable letting the conversation go from there, end quote. Well, this is quite a pickle we're in. Now we're not so much talking about the attributes of God, the character of God, whether he's you know belligerent in the old and soft-hearted, grandfatherly in the new. Now we're talking about a deeper issue of historicity. I'm fascinated for multiple reasons by these comments, Dr. Moeller. Uh, you trained me in part to think about issues of human sexuality. You trained me and many others to see that these issues, uh, this is back in the early 2000s, uh, seemingly a century ago, these issues were, were going to be on the forefront for decades to come, and indeed they are. Here we have a trusted and widely listened to Christian leader and preacher who is saying that the the reference to the first two people, I assume in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, may not be historical. Man, that puts you in all sorts of uh, problematic territory when it comes to human sexuality, when it comes to God's design for marriage, when it comes to the very fabric of the Old Testament itself, when it comes to Adamic headship. Um, 
this is a big deal that Stanley is backing away from historicity. But here again, I think others probably are going to follow his lead to some degree. You agree? Well, and of course, they, they already are. Your, your point's exactly right, and, and I was going in the very same direction. Look, I, I, uh, I would simply ask people to observe this phenomenon. When someone shows up with an argument like this, so far out of left field, uh, no pun intended, but <laughs> so far out of left field, yeah. and, uh, and someone looks at it, and, and they go, you know, this, uh, this can't be a standalone argument. It has to go with other arguments. And of course, in the case of Andy Stanley, it is already in the, in the, the, the context of other arguments, in, in which he's been, let's just say, as charitably as possible, confusing on the issue of the Bible's teaching on sexuality and, and what that should mean for Christians today. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so again, you look at this, you realize, hey, decoupling from the Old Testament is incredibly convenient. Uh, ex- and Andy makes that point where he says, you know, the moral, uh, what he, he talks about you know, what was unhitched, uh, and uh, I want to go back to his statement because I, I, I don't want to paraphrase and get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he said that, uh, that Peter, James, and Paul uh, unhitched uh, the Church from the Old Testament worldview, value system, and regulations mm-hmm. uh, of the Jewish Scriptures. Yes. Well, hold on, which regulations? Because not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout the, Old, the, uh, the New Testament, uh, the entire moral law is recapitulated. Mm. So any moral law, uh, uh, any part of the moral law we're trying to get over from the Old Testament uh, is actually repeated in the New Testament, mm. uh, the entirety of, of the structure of the moral law. Now, the Holiness Code, the ceremonial law, and, uh, and, and some of the law assigned particularly to Israel as a, as a, as a national identity, that, that's not affirmed in the New Testament. But if you're looking at human sexuality, mm. uh, there's no escape by trying to hide in the New Testament as a way of refuge from the old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly on, on human sexuality, I mean, things, things go up. Things go up a level. Here's what we were talking about in terms of judgment a few minutes ago. I mean, we were talking about God's vision for the sexes and human sexuality. Uh, Genesis 2 is filled out, for example, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. So what we're seeing by way of textual hints in terms of the relationship between husband and wife with with Eve being created from Adam and, and Adam naming Eve and these sorts of things, these things which are pointing to headship. Ephesians 5 actually makes that explicit and makes it plain and takes it to a Christological degree. But if you don't have a real... Hist- well, the same way... Yeah. Yeah, don't say the same way. Jesus internalizes it. I mean, because you could be... Uh, you, you could live according to the Old Testament law on adultery, and fall infinitely short of Jesus' New Testament command on adultery. Mm. Because all you had to do to obey the Old Testament command on adultery is not commit adultery. Mm. But Jesus said, that's not enough. Mm. Uh, When Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, he didn't make anything easier, he made everything harder. Uh, he, he said, mm. because now you commit, I, so far as I'm concerned, you have already committed adultery if, if you commit adultery in your heart, if you lust after a woman in your heart. Mm. So there is no place anywhere in the Scripture where anywhere in the New Testament it says, eh, you know, all that stuff about sexual morality, the definition of marriage, what it means to be male and female, we're over that now. Mm. Uh, to the contrary, just as you point out with Ephesians 5. Oh, and can I point out something else that's of just in, inherent central gospel significance? Please do. So uh, what about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Are, are we embarrassed by that? You know, um, 
the 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 German theologians in the late 18th and uh, and the 19th centuries became just horribly embarrassed by the idea of blood sacrifice. They they uh, they said, look, that's a tribal uh, deity of uh, of revenge, retributive justice, you know, requiring a sacrifice, a bloodthirsty deity. Uh, Whose uh, whose hunger for judgment has to be uh, you know sated, uh, and, and so they say you know you look at the Old Testament it's just it's just horrifyingly crude this idea that sin requires the payment of a penalty and uh, that that penalty takes the form of a blood sacrifice and so you say well you know okay let's just read the Old Testament wow that uh, from a 21st century uh, modern Western perspective that uh, that seems really shocking. Mm. Until you read the New Testament, where the entirety of the book of Hebrews is explaining exactly how the Old Testament sacrificial system is fulfilled in the uh, the perfect sacrifice of Christ as not just the high priest, but the great high priest, mm. uh, who, who shed his own blood. Yes, blood, right there. And, and then you have Jesus... Uh, not only in the entirety of his earthly ministry, situating himself as the the, the one who was the, the the suffering servant and the, uh, the 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 Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth, but you have Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to the cross in order to lay his life down and shed his blood the night before he was he he, he uh, was tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very night he was betrayed, Jesus to his disciples said, "This is my blood shed for the remission of sins." And then in in, in Romans chapter three, verses twenty one and following, the apostle Paul actually explains exactly how uh, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, fulfilled the righteous demands of the very same holy God who demanded the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The the New Testament simply doesn't allow even the experimentation or, you know, the the imagination Mm -hmm. reflected here in this this very dangerous teaching. You know, that's fascinating because uh, Stanley's remarks did not center in the atonement, uh, but as you're pointing out, if you start thinking about Old to New Covenant connections, in the area of atonement, of, of sacrifice, of, of soteriology, really, uh, you are very quickly in extreme trouble when it comes to these matters, because now I'm not even sure what framework Stanley leaves us with if we, if we do decouple the new from the old, as you're, as you're pointing out. If we do, in other words, jettison the sacrificial system, Fosdick and others urged that. Uh, okay, so let's, let's, let's play that game. Yes, sacrificial system is out. What exactly now uh, is Jesus doing? How exactly are we reconciled to God? And Andy Stanley does not tackle that theme uh, in, in the article that you have written. Uh, I'm sure we could point to other sermons that he's He's given in that know, sort yes, of thing. He does in the uh, uh, in the interview he did with uh, with Jonathan Merritt that uh, got a great deal of attention, and we can understand why. Mm. Uh, in it, he said, and I quote: "I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument." End quote. Now, mm. that's really an atonement issue. Mm. I mean, that, I mean that, that because because Jesus specifically does. Let's put it this way: Jesus doesn't follow Andy's advice. He actually refers to the <laughs> Old Testament continually as the explanation, not only for who he is, but what he would accomplish, and why he would go to the cross, and why he would die. Mm. But, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you listen to Andy's preaching, and uh, I, I, I will just say, a, a fair understanding of Andy's preaching, if you listen to a lot of it, 
is that his understanding of what it means to be a Christian is most fundamentally to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and there's, there's just not a lot of cross. There's not a lot of explanation at all as to why Jesus died. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the, 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 the attention, uh, that which Jesus gave the greatest attention, is, uh, is overwhelmingly absent uh, from, from Andy's preaching, even about the gospel. And, uh, you know, this gets to issues of lordship and, and obedience and repentance, uh, whether those are, uh, are, are essential to the gospel, most importantly, repentance. But it also gets to what exactly is a Christian. And, uh, uh, you know, confusing uh, the cross is, uh, is aided and abetted, let's just say very clearly, by trying to unhitch from the Old Testament. Yeah, it's, it strikes me in listening to you and chewing on what you're saying that you could almost propose a new motif of the atonement based off of the kind of material we're hearing from Stanley and Brian Zond and Rob Bell and others. And it's, it's this, I'm making this up on the fly, so handle with care. Christus quietus. In other words, it's almost like these guys don't want Jesus. In their rendering, Jesus doesn't really die a bloody death. Instead, Jesus just kind of passes away in his sleep. And they're still really excited about the resurrection of Jesus. They love that. That that plays well with everybody. Everybody can get something from resurrection. But they it's it's almost in other words as if the bloody death where Jesus absorbs the wrath, the full wrath of the Father in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Father uh, not to just see him die, but to crush him uh, under the weight of, of just penalty for sin, which Jesus took on himself through no fault of his own. It's almost as if they want, Dr. Moeller, Jesus to have died in his sleep rather than Jesus to have made atonement for sin. Yeah, I think it's a it's it's that and and more than that because uh, it, it it's really Jesus as the victim of an imperial system. Mm. Uh, Jesus as the misunderstood uh, you know prophet, son of God. Uh, and again, I I think both the individuals you mentioned would very clearly affirm uh, the full deity of Christ. Mm. Uh, but uh, you, you know your entire theology of atonement is completely transformed if all Jesus is, is a victim. If he is not uh, himself headed by his own obedience to the Father, to the cross, to die on behalf of sinners in a blood atonement, if it's not that, then you can redefine the atonement, which, which leads to some really, really interesting questions. And, of course, Brian Zond has been very open about this. I mean, this is leading him into a, uh, some form of a very open universalism or inclusivism. And, uh, and again, very, very convenient in the 21st century if you want to get over uh, the, the, the scandal of having to uh, preach a gospel uh, that means that uh, heaven and hell hang in the balance over whether a, a sinner hears the gospel and believes. And we must preach that. We must continue preaching that. Evangelical preachers listening to this podcast should reject that softer, less biblically faithful approach, and they should preach uh, so-called the bad news, so that the good news will shine all the more gloriously. In other words, it is real that uh, we live in a yeah. natural state in enmity with God, and, and God's wrath is, is headed for us. We are separated from him, and we will suffer his just punishment for all eternity. But Christ has made a way uh, for us to go back to God, to be saved, to be, to be washed clean 
by virtue of absorbing the full fury of the Father's wrath on the yeah. cross. If we have no bad news, though, biblically based, I mean, we, we cannot really understand the good news as something other than, I don't know, a vitamin boost for the Christian life. And that is not how the, how the biblical authors, the New Testament authors, present the cross. Yeah, and you know, I, I understand what you mean when you say the bad news, because I've used the very same expression the Puritans did. Uh, you know, the, the Puritans used that, that very kind of language. Uh, and I understand it, it's, it's really true, but I just preached uh, last Sunday morning, again, as I have many times in the past, in Romans chapter 7. Mm. And uh, it, it just is a reminder of the fact that the Apostle Paul speaks of the law slaying him. Mm. You know, the, the law kills. Yes. Uh, Jesus said that in John 6, the, the Spirit gives life, the flesh accomplishes nothing. Um, but then the Apostle Paul turns around and says, so that, does that make the law bad? Mm. And he comes back and says, no, absolutely not. Mm. The law is holy. And, and, and so it's sort of the good news and the better news. Mm. The good news is, by means of the law and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, um, we find out the truth about ourselves. It's a, it's a hard truth, and, and yeah, in that sense it's kind of, it's, it, it's kind of bad news. But it's, uh, it's good news in that we finally know the truth about ourselves. We know the truth about our relationship uh, with God, our, our separation from God by, by our sin. We, we, we come to know the good news that, uh, well, let me put it this way, the real news, <laughs> which, which is good for us to know, the truth about ourselves, that there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve our salvation. But then comes the infinitely good news, that mm-hmm. what we could not do for ourselves, God did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the, ungod, the, uh, the ungodly are, are redeemed because the, the godly, the God-man, the Son of God, died in the place of the ungodly mm. and, and shed his own blood for our, for our salvation. So, uh, you know, I, I understand exactly what you mean, and you're exactly right, and you've got, you and I both use that kind of language. I, I just was reminded, even this past Sunday, that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul refuses to say that's really bad news. Uh, because it's the truth that makes us yearn for Christ. Hmm. Uh, I like I like thinking that through. That's helpful. Uh, I want to wrap up with you here. I really appreciate your comments and you joining us on the podcast today. Why this is this is not so much uh, deeply theological uh, in terms of where we've been. Why is it you have had a burden in the course of your ministry and your theological career to engage the tough issues? In other words, some theologians. Um, you know, they want to teach the church and they want to help the church and praise God for that, but they don't necessarily wade into the tougher issues. When did this instinct in you desire uh, develop? When did it grow and, and flourish in terms of answering those who are in truth, as you essentially say in your article, um, uh, not doing justice to the truth or even attacking the truth of God's word? You know, Owen, what a good question. It requires uh, a better self-knowledge than I, I may have of myself, <laughs> but I'll say it at least goes back to when I was a teenager. I had a deep theological apologetic crisis when I was, uh, when, when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, when I had atheist teachers in, uh, in the school system who were just hitting me with very strong and um, uh, very straightforward atheist arguments. I had to figure this out. And... Uh, that, that helped me to understand what, what really is hanging in the, the difference between belief and unbelief, between theism and atheism. I mean, we're, the, the, the one thing that you and I have in common with an atheist, again, is that we agree that the most important question on the planet uh, any human being can face is, is, is there a God? Hmm. And so uh, th- that kind of began it. But then 
you know, I, I came to adulthood in the midst of a massive theological controversy in our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and beyond. And I was introduced to it really early. I was introduced to it when I heard a theologian, you know, say, I will have no bloody cross religion. <laughs> uh, and just say it was a slander against God's character and power to say that he could not forgive sins until there was, in the theologian's words, quote, a killing at Calvary, end quote. Wow. And I thought, you know, that sounds really good. But uh, unfortunately, uh, that means the loss of the entire gospel. Th- th- there's no gospel left. And then I had a, a major preacher when I was in college who, who came to, uh, uh, to speak to, to the university, a Christian university, and, and said, quote, Jesus was God's way of getting over a bad reputation, end quote. You know, oh. well, that'll preach. Wow. Uh, that sounds really good. Until you think about, where did God get that bad reputation? And, and then I realized the longer he preached, he meant the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So as an 18-year-old, first year you know, in, in college as a, as a religion and philosophy major, I hear that that major pastor just completely dismissed the Old Testament, and I'm just thinking, I, that's just not what Jesus did. Yes. So uh, I, there's a long pedigree here. I guess you can say I'm, I'm 58, about to turn 59. I was 18 when I heard that statement made. So there is 40 years of sustained concern uh, about this one issue. Amazing how, you know, a sentence can can effectively help lead your life in a certain direction. I, I also uh, have to ask this before we conclude. Uh, at one point, back when I was uh, working for you in your office, you laid out, I think it was three major concerns that you saw headed the way of the church in the 21st century, and you uh, decided that you were going to give sustained attention to these areas, to these doctrines, really. So I think it was yes. the doctrine of human sexuality. I think it was the doctrine of divine creation. I, I may be wrong here. Um, I cannot remember yeah. the third. Do I have those right? And and has that played out in the way you anticipated with those different doctrines receiving so much attention? Well, it has, and and you're right. It's uh, it's human sexuality, and uh, and and then very much the doctrine of creation, because everything follows. I mean, yes, <laughs> it's easy to imagine logically, but even historically, theologically, everything follows. And uh, no one made that point better than B.B. Warfield uh, when when he said back in the 19th century, if God created the world, then everything we know as the gospel and the law follows from God's creation of the world, then, then, then the only one who can tell us anything about the creation he's made is God. Mm-hmm. And if, if God hadn't spoken in his word, we're, we're sunk. So in creation, I'm putting, I'm, I'm with Warfield, putting, say, saying everything is there. And human sexuality, again, the unraveling of an entire uh, system of truth and uh, the institutions from creation that, that, that make human flourishing possible. Uh, but the, the third issue is the coherence of, of Christianity, uh, especially uh, looking at, at 1 Corinthians uh, 15, where Paul says, For I preach unto you what I received as a first priority, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that God raised him from the dead according to the Scriptures. And, and to me, again, that, that, that takes us right to the Scriptures, but it also says, look, the entirety of the Gospel, uh, Paul knew to be absolutely subverted by not always talking about the cross and Christ's death, the resurrection and, and, and Christ's living by the vindication of the Father according to the Scriptures. 
And so the exclusivity, the gospel, everything is in there. I I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for uh, giving your time to be on the podcast. And uh, I think this is a tremendous article. Uh, I have immense respect for you and thankfulness for your ministry. So thank you, Dr. Mueller. Well, Owen, listen, one of the great gifts of my life at, at, at this stage of my life is to recognize uh, how the Lord has gifted me with, uh, with so many wonderful, uh, brilliant, and, and faithful men as, as colleagues in this task. And uh, you have been one of those for a very long time. And uh, one of the, the gifts for which I am most grateful are conversation partners and colleagues in these, uh, these tasks, these challenges, these questions. Uh, for life. So uh, I'm always glad to talk with you and uh, and very encouraged by this conversation with you. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.